Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. What are you telling me that can help my own life? And in some way that comes down to a, a kind of a beautiful axiom about living, which is what exactly are you doing on the planet? What what are you doing for other people? How are you being generous with your resources and with your skills and with your experiences? And so for me, when I see people lit up by the things I talk about or the music that I play, and they go off and do things themselves, that it inspires them. Hey, I just read your book and it's inspiring me to write a book. That to me gives me goosebumps. That's the most beautiful thing where this flame, you know, it's a beautiful thing about a flame. It can't, you know, you can extinguish it, but it also can be infinitely renewable by lighting up other people. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Peter, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Rainy. My pleasure. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. You know, um, I came across your book by way of your publicist who, uh, you know, when and when she told me about it, when I got the pitch, I thought, yeah, this is really interesting because you literally became a rock star who ended up becoming sort of an expert in creativity, which is very cool. Um, but, you know, where I want to start is by asking you about sort of the impact that uh, the relationship you had with your father has had on your life and your career, because I know you, you talk about it prominently throughout the book. And um, I was just really kind of intrigued by that relationship and the influence that it's had on your life. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you picked up on that. And this is something that my wife and I have recently been talking about. So how my thinking about this has changed a little bit in the last few days. So my wife believes that I, because my dad died when he was really young and I was really young when he died, I was you know, 23, he got stage four cancer when I was maybe, I think like 18 or 17. My life had just changed. So he said, you have this hagiographic perspective about your dad. You, I've never heard you say anything wrong about him. Mm-hmm. And he was there for you. He was this cool, likable guy, which he was. I felt totally supported. And then I think a few days ago, I got this bunch of memorabilia from my mom. She's cleaning out her house. She's 84 or something in Minneapolis. And and I get my report cards from from eighth grade. And I and I I was shocked. I literally had like a, a pain in my stomach for this eighth grade kid. My grades 
were so abysmal. I'm not kidding. It was like I was embarrassed to show it to my wife. I had three D minuses, a B in gym, and a C minus in English. And I thought to myself, where were my parents? What what were they thinking? And these were my grades all through junior high and high school. So my dad was very supportive and loving, but in some way, he wasn't around that much. He worked and my mom was a teacher. She worked. Maybe the answer to your question is they just gave me a ton of space. Mm. Wow. So two, two questions come for this. Um, you know, one of the things that I know you mentioned at the very beginning of the book was this idea that you knew you wanted to be a rock star, right? Uh, when you were a kid and you know, a lot of people have these sort of very weird creative dreams and they're not really encouraged because they're, they're not seen as, as viable ways of making a living. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, one, what is it about the way that you are raised that enabled that? Was it space that made that possible? And as somebody who has made a career out of being a performing musician, I mean, what do you say to people who are wanting to do that or, or seeing these kinds of tendencies in their own kids? Well, I mean, one, I'm sure your parents were super, you know, creative as well, or they, you know, I, I read somewhere that they were teachers or professors. Mm -hmm. So they were modeling this kind of adventuresome intellectual behavior or which I consider highly creative, you know, it might not be performative like musicianship. So you, as a parent, I would say one thing is you, you model that behavior yourself. Let's say you're listening to, you know, bebop jazz and it's like your thing. Your kid, I mean, if you want your kid to be a musician, you have to be somehow providing her with this access. So my dad owned an A-track tape shop, as a matter of fact, in like the early 70s. And we'd bring home Janis Joplin stuff for me. Because he thought that was cool. He didn't know anything about music. And Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones. I was like, as a really young kid, I had all this music. Mm -hmm. The other thing he did, he didn't hover over me. He wasn't, I wasn't doing it for him. He gave me access and allowed me freedom and space. But I wasn't trying to please him. I think that's a mistake that parents often get into. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you first um, came to the realization that this is what you wanted to do with your life? Well, I think I first, when I was younger, maybe fourth grade or fifth grade, I wanted to be an oceanographer. Uh -huh. And I was somehow told that you needed a lot of math for that. And that was somehow off-putting. And then my cousin, Doug, had this electric guitar that I sort of spied. And those were the days and it was like the early seventies where electric guitars were somewhat a little subversive. I mean, you didn't see them everywhere. They weren't selling Burger King hamburgers. It wasn't, it wasn't everywhere. You'd find them in the back of a Sears catalog and I would look at them and sort of stare. And there was something about the physical object that, just possessed me. And I thought this is going to be something for me, like a magic carpet. 
it's going to make me safe in the world somehow. Mm-hmm. Why is it that you think people um, overlook moments like that in their life or write them off or don't do anything about them? No, that's a, you know, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I don't really deign to know the answer, but I kind of offer a couple guesses. I mean, what is the level of intensity of that experience isn't profound enough, but I think probably more accurately, it's that they, they don't see that idea of seizing upon your dreams modeled for them. They probably see their parents in these jobs that they, they abhor. They probably see a lot of fatigue and sort of, you know, phoning it in, in their life in general. I guess when I saw my dad, one of the things, getting back to that original question, you know, what did your dad do for you? He was always really passionate. He was an entrepreneur. He had his own battery, car battery shop, you know, maybe when I was an infant. He was going up against diehard batteries as if that was possible. He created a security camera that, you know, later got bought out by Honeywell. He had this eight-track tape shop. He had a cross-country ski. He just, he brought his ideas into the world. You know, for me, that was like normal. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> what do you say to, to somebody who has not found whatever that thing is in their life um, that, lights them up like this and and you know how do you find models if you haven't had them you know i don't want to like start quoting from my book or anything but you know in my own life it's not like i've been in this feckin' creative mood in an uninterrupted way either i mean i've i think i spend most of my time in a very anxious and uncreative mode to be frank. And I have, they're always punctuated by these very fertile interruptions. And one of the things that I do is, you know, I set up these little traps for myself and I say, all right, for five minutes, sit in a chair and just write about things that you wish you could do. And I don't care how absurd they are, how outrageous, you know, I want to, learn to somehow flap my arms and fly or breathe underwater. I mean, all these, I just don't think at some point and just write and put down these ideas on paper and then reading them, I think is a, is a pretty interesting process. You start to learn about yourself. And if you do it in such a way that you're not thinking or analytical or self editing, and you just spew these things onto the page. It's almost like a written uh, statement from directly from your id. I think there's a lot to learn there. People are afraid, in my opinion, not necessarily to pursue their dreams, that's for sure, but even to, to touch base, to have some you know, uh, mental awareness of what they possibly could be. If that makes any sense. Oh, yes. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Um, well, I actually want to start getting into the book and, and really kind of this idea of bringing ideas into the world, which seems to be really core to, to sort of the theme of your work. But I want to ask you more about the music background, because, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, having been a, a musician, having been accepted to the USC School of Music and not going, I know what goes into life as a professional musician. It's not an easy path. 
Um, so I, I'm curious uh, about a couple of things. One, you know, how do you manage your psychology when you're navigating such an uncertain path? What did doing it teach you about persistence and grit? And what did it teach you about practice, daily habits, and how that impacts performance, which I realize are like three questions in one. Yeah, and I might have an answer that's a little bit um, different. I mean, what instrument did you play? By I played the, way? the tuba, <laughs> which is oh, not very, very versatile. Cool. You know, that's a really interesting and cool instrument. Man, tuba players are so in demand, by the way, the people that can really play. <laughs> As you say, not many people do it, but yeah. they're definitely in demand. You know, for me, there was always a, a, a structure but it was it was a strange structure. So much of this I did on my own. So the band that I had in sixth grade, you know, there weren't adults trying to administer the band. Nobody had a hand in it except, you know, us kids. And I was sort of the leader of the band. For example, what I'm talking about is that I would imagine playing a new song and bringing it to the band. This is when I was 12, and I, I didn't really understand exactly what kind of song I would write. I would be listening to, you know, some blues record that my uncle had given me, or, again, I had a lot of people modeling this behavior for me. Um, I liked the Animals, you know, the band from England with Eric Burden as the lead singer. So I wanted to write something that sounded like the Animals to play for some kids. And that would be my thought. I need something to fill this structure. And the structure was self-imposed. It was by next Wednesday, I'd like to have this thing ready for our band practice in the garage. And that would allow me, though it was kind of a ad hoc structure, it was a very real structure. I see this thing coming into place. I kind of can sort of almost hear it in my mind, at least the vague contours of the music, of the song, maybe what I want it to feel like bluesy and something like English blues bands. And I need to have it done by Wednesday's band practice. It's almost everything you need. You have a vision of what it could be, which is very fuzzy and ephemeral. And then you have a very strict, dogmatic you know, structure to put that in, and in some ways, modeling this so-called left brain, right brain thing. And I think those are the little things that I've always done for myself all along. If I needed to take lessons in order to get this vision created by a certain time or listen to a record and learn some licks off that, I would do that. But, but whether the structures are self-imposed as they often were in my case, or if there's a school system that you're working within, you always need to have two. You have the vision of how it looks in success, which compels you and gives you resilience against the potential drudgery and the pain of failure and all that other negative stuff. It fuels your ambition. And then you have to have this really clear structure, very specific. Oh, I need this and this key, by Wednesday, there's going to be this band practice or however, you know, your dream is going to manifest itself. Mm. Wow. Um, so walk me through the journey from being a musician to the big muse to writing this book. And then we'll start getting into the principles in the book and how we use the ideas in the book to bring uh, stuff to life. 
Yeah, and I'm and I'm asked this question a lot, so I'm thinking about it. You know, how did you go from like you know rock musician to whatever I am now? You know, uh, I don't even know what to call it. I go around and speak at different companies. I go to different schools, and I wrote this book. Part of it was the the kind of the waning of the music industry, and the music industry is it's it's changed i mean it's completely there obviously are people making a lot of money from music you know kanye and all sorts of jay you know you're hearing all these jay-z and people are still doing it but it's changed so much and for those that don't know it's like how to buckle your seatbelt, and they tell you when you're getting on an airplane most people do but you can listen to any song you want for free at any time mm-hmm. go to youtube and call up almost any song that's ever been written and that in itself changed sort of the certainly the the monetary aspects the remunerative aspect of you know how to how do i make a living through music when the whole industry is shifting but even worse for me and even more compelling was that i found people well, I ask people, you know, when's the last time you listened to a full album of music to the exclusion of all else? I don't mean on vinyl or any particular delivery system, but when did you sit and listen to a full record? <laughs> I can't remember. Exactly. And you're a person who's, you know, like myself, I don't do it very often either. Mm-hmm. Now there are so many things, you know, vying for our attention. They're all out there in in music. It takes time. It literally exists in time. You can't get around it. It takes a long time. We're so now, you know, used to things that are 30 seconds or a minute and 30 seconds. Even this podcast is sort of an outlier for certain kinds of people that can go 45 minutes or an hour into something. But music, people started not even, forget that they're not buying it. That was one problem. But this to me was even more substantial because it affected the way I felt in the world that part of the reason I make music or do anything is I want to feel valued. And that's a problem with my family order. I was the third out of four. And they, the rest of them were making so much noise and getting attention. I felt that unless I did something amazing, nobody would love me. It comes down to being loved in the world. It's very compelling, by the way. How we get our love and therefore our safety in the world is so determinative of how we act in the world. So I thought, well, what what else can I do? And I was also doing a lot of film and TV scoring. I did a show called Bones for three or four years, all the music, so called Judging Amy. And that was killing me because I like to talk, as you can see. And I'm in a room for 10 hours by myself a day or more. That was hard, too. I wasn't feel I was getting the love and value. So I started to think, what what do I what do I know? What is the essence of what I know? Well, part of what I know is how to make stuff under pressure, under tremendous pressure, especially with that television stuff where you have to write maybe 40 minutes of original music 
fully produced, not like demos. There was no demo stage. It had to be shiny and bright and full, fully baked. How do you do that music in three days? There wasn't even mathematically enough time to get it done. And part of what I started to think about was how then do you set aside the fearful voice, which tells you these things, whatever they may be, can't be done. And I started to think about processes and the way that I worked and the way other people worked. And I thought, I wonder if this could be valuable to businesses. I knew, I knew nothing about businesses, by the way, four or five, six years ago. I mean, the word ROI, none of it, you know, investments, capital gains, and none of it did I know. Still don't know much. I didn't even know, you know, much about HR or anything like that or creative leadership and development. I've never heard those words, the words that I I'm around all the time now. So I had this vague suspicion that what I had was valuable. And I put together a little program and I offered it to a friend of mine who worked at a company in San Antonio, a technology company. You know, can you go down and do it for us? And I did it and it was amazingly successful. They liked it and I felt like, yeah, this is really something. And then I got hired by a friend who was working at The Gap. And it was, you know, one thing led to another and and I guess I went where I felt loved and valued, quite frankly. I mean, I think that that, aside from the potential money that could be made from this, much more compelling in almost every creative case is where you're feeling this sense of love and value. I guess, you know, that's as clear as I can be about it. Mm. How do you identify the things that are giving you a sense of love and value in your life and your work that are giving it? Yeah. Well, I think part of it comes down to, especially nowadays, people want things. It seems maybe they always did that are, you know, how does this help me? How does this podcast help me? For example, you know, there's a question. What are you, what are you telling me? that can help my own life. And in some way that comes down to a, a kind of a beautiful axiom about living, which is what exactly are you doing on the planet? What, what are you doing for other people? How are you being generous with your resources and with your skills and with your experiences? And so for me, when I see people lit up, by the things I talk about or the music that I play and they go off and do things themselves that it inspires them. Hey, I've just read your book and it's inspiring me to write a book. That to me gives me goosebumps. That's the most beautiful thing where this flame, you know, it's a beautiful thing about a flame. It can't, you know, you can extinguish it, but it also can be infinitely renewable by lighting up other people. And that, in some ways, when I feel like I'm giving something to help somebody grow, that's the best feeling. That's the best way I know I'm on the right path, I guess. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's start talking about the ideas in the book, because, you know, I mean, the book is titled Let Me Out, which is really all about bringing ideas out into the world. So I'd love for you to walk us through, um, you know, what you call these uh, brain bottle openers and, and how we get ideas out into the world. What is it that prevents ideas from getting out into the world? You know, where do people get stuck and how do, how do they overcome those creative blocks? Yeah, I mean, I'll just dig right into some of the meat of the book. You know, I, I just I think I talked for a minute about these kind of voices in our heads that mm-hmm. tell us, you know, Peter, which is it told me, 
um, you, you're never going to be able to write a book. I mean, as I said, I never went to school beyond high school and I, my grades were, as I discovered, abysmal. The voice in your head is protecting you at all times from failure. And it's, it's, not, it's not removable. In my book, I just want to mention, I never purport like some sort of new age, you know, whatever. I'm going to change the way you are. You're going to be, I'm going to be the most anxious person in the world, which I am. And have all these fearful thoughts for the rest of my life. That's never going to change. What I'm sort of saying is let's identify this fearful voice, which I'll explain in a second. And let's create some methods to push it aside for a minute. So the way that I kind of it really happened one day, I sort of thought about this voice and I gave it a name and just the name popped out, Marv. It just seemed like a very non-aggressive not a scary voice. And then I drew a picture. I do some art. So I did like a cartoon of this very milk toasty, bald headed guy. Kind of looks, you know, like me from silhouette. He doesn't have any talons or fangs. And what is what is it? Well, Marv is an acronym for majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability, which I came up with later, about two months later. I'm like, damn, now I got it. It's, I put the whole thing together. And uh, a lot of people are trying to eradicate this, this voice, this negative internal voice. It can't be eradicated. And you never want it to be eradicated. It's sort of your safety system. Marv is, lives. It's a metaphor for some energy in your amygdala, the limbic brain, which is the emotional brain and responds to threats. So if there is a rabid dog about to pounce on you it's this amygdala it's this marv that's now taking action and he's pulling the lever of adrenaline and making you run or take a bottle and smack him over the head or however you can save yourself it's it's incredibly important the problem is is that we've evolved as humans and created these safer and safer societies for most of us thank god we don't usually encounter these mortal threats but Marv intuits somebody not liking our book or our record album as a mortal threat. So he's very cautious about this. And what he his kind of logic, if I can put it in those terms, if I come on your show, on your podcast, and I sound like an idiot and I fail, Marv has actually, by the way, said to me about four in the morning, you better be up for this guy. This Sweeney is a pretty sharp dude, and you better be up. But you could, Peter, you could get on there and sound like an idiot. You could fail, possibly. And if you fail, you will be ashamed. This is how Marv's process works. And what happens to shameful people in the world, logically, they're abandoned. Everyone shuns a, a horrible, shameful person. And then he goes the final step. What happens to the abandoned, 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 abandoned? It gets a scary music underscores here. Some music I would have used for bones. He reminds us this that Mara voice and our amygdala that when we were infants and he does this all on a subconscious level, if we were abandoned, we literally would have died. 
So the fear that people have about moving ahead in their life, about being creative, about reinventing themselves, about having even difficult conversations is really a fear of their own mortality. It's heavy, it's deep, it's serious. It's not something you can just brush aside and laugh off. The technique that I found that works to get Marv to sort of take a break is simply to start the first steps of that which you are fearful of. So, for example, I wanted to fly an airplane all my life. It's something I always wanted to do. And I was afraid of crashing and dying. And especially as a father and I have four kids, and they're going to say my father was an idiot. He died in a plane. So I never did it. Then I thought I'm going to test my book. I'm going to literally use the tenants in the book and see what I can do. The first step that I took was walking to my chair, which sits in front of my computer with intention. That's all I did. And, and once I walked to my chair with intention, the Mar voice didn't even know really what was happening. I sat down and then I Google searched flight times, test flights in Santa Monica, where I, near where I live. Now, those were tiny little actions, but they were, I, I don't even know how to articulate it. They were a universe apart. They were of a different order from my previous fearful mulling, as insignificant as they sound. And one step leads to another. And while you're in process, this Mar voice is kind of quiet. He's like, oh, Peter's Googling search for it. He's cool. He's, he's in process. Obviously, he's got this. And Marv leaves you alone. And I was, you know, in a month or two flying over the San Fernando Valley in a Cessna. And Marv was basically in the back saying, yeah, right on, Peter. So, I mean, that's a little bit of how I explain that internal voice. Mm -hmm. So outside of the voice, what about taking ideas and bringing them to life sort of logically? That's, you know, sort of the first step, but what, you know, what else goes into this? Like what are the other things that we could be doing to, to bring ideas to life that are sort of sitting and, and brewing in our heads? Well, I mean, it is, it is a first piece, but it's the first middle and last piece as well. Cause that, that voice is always there. So in writing the book, for example, I'm just using the things that I have done that were very fearful for me. Um, you know, and what did I do with this process? It was simply a matter of getting this Marv to move aside. And as far as a book goes, these, these, the things that we want to pursue, how to pursue them is fairly easy, especially these days. There's so many, you know, manuals online and so on the technical aspects of how these things are done are are far easier than managing the emotional things that that prevent us from doing it so as far as the book you know i started writing an outline or a chapter and i got help from other people the other thing that marv prevents us from doing this internal critic and i and I, i'm gonna ask you about this too yeah when you started this podcast idea, how long have you been doing it, by the way? Uh, at the end of this year, it'll be eight years, I think, or seven years. Oh, <laughs> Losing a really, track. A super long time. So, I mean, I'd feed it back to you. Yeah. Was there any point at the beginning where 
you had any doubts about its success. Yeah. I mean, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Yeah, that's right. It's always there. And then the other question I want to ask, too, which you know relates to one of the ideas in my book, who specifically did you go to? You know, I'm assuming you didn't do the entire thing in a vacuum. Who did you go to for support or advice or even run the idea by? So the idea was never even mine to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, one of the people I, I, I was in a course, um, you know, one of the lessons was interview somebody. And so instead of interviewing one person, I interviewed, you know, 13 and the 13th guy I interviewed what said to me, he said, I think you should take this and spin it out as a separate site. And he actually ended up being, uh, you know, my first business partner. Like he's the one who helped me build the website. He helped me do a lot of the initial work. Right. So I'm so glad you said it. I almost the way that you articulated is so good. I have like goosebumps because of the truth of it. And it sounds maybe simple. Like, you know, you've met this guy and you work together. Here's something that, that I find always existent in people who seem not to be able to get their dream off the ground. And I asked them, who have you shared this idea with? Who have you, if not made a formal partnership who have you enlisted for some form of support, some feedback? The people that haven't got their idea off the ground almost uniformly say, well, I don't have anybody. I've been kind of working this by myself. And I'm like, having somebody is so crucial, even though I had made all these solo albums, they weren't solo albums. There were so many people helping me with my idea. When Bruce Springsteen makes a solo album, there's so many people helping and supporting and advising and obviously literally playing with him. Um, As far as I can see, the most sort of solo person ever was Prince. He's a kind of a, a rare case. Maybe his genius allowed that. But in the end, it, it probably killed him as well. So we won't we won't dwell on Prince, one of my musical heroes. But could you could you imagine having any success at all in this very successful podcast that you're doing without that thirteenth guy that you interviewed? No, <laughs> we wouldn't have even started it or spun it out into what it is without. Yes, it. it's a, it's a beautiful. I mean, it's I like it because it's such a simple thing to do. Find somebody, and by the way, to clarify, it's it's a little tricky. You can't find some obsequious sycophant, uh-huh. you know, to say everything you're doing is amazing. That's totally not what I'm talking about, as you can imagine. Yeah. And by the same token, there's a lot of people out there, even friends of ours, that maybe don't want to see exactly our success for one reason or another. Maybe they think we'll abandon them too. As I said, love and value is so important to people and they can get sometimes negative. I think the key in finding somebody is that somebody isn't a problem identifier or at least when they identify a problem, they come with a solution in hand or at least the thought of creating a solution. Because if you come at somebody and said, Peter, what do you think of my song? I get this all the time. Every week people send me their songs 
and I love it. And I'll never say, well, you know, this bridge sucks. It's horrible. Um, I'll, I'll say something like, you know, if you notice what's happening in the third verse where the lyric sort of leaps out, it's talking about something so poignantly and so universally. Um, and it really gave me goosebumps by identifying sometimes what's beautiful about something. It's implicit, you know, add that same beauty to the first two verses. So, I mean, finding a person who's, who can give you support doesn't even have to be necessarily knowledgeable about what you're doing, just some sort of support without being a sycophant and without pouring cold water on it mm. is crucial to whatever you're doing. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the people who pour, pour cold water in it because that kind of set up the next question. Uh, I was going to ask you, you know, I, I think sometimes what will happen for somebody is that they will, you know, go out seeking support and what will happen instead is they'll get discouragement and at the first sign of discouragement, they, they give up or they quit. Um, it, it, how, it do happened, you, how do you deal it, with that? It, it and too. How, do you, how do you overcome it? You know, it, it happens to me so many times and, and there'd probably be a million times it's happened to me. So look, I want to say I'm not immune to this kind of stuff at all. First step is to, to be very mindful that you can get this kind of cold water, you know, so it doesn't come as a surprise. The people that literally throw cold water are not the people you want to deal with. People can give you very good advice and, and sort of, con I hate even the word, constructive criticism to me sounds like cold water already. They can give you guidance that may require you to do much more work. So don't interpret that as cold water. The timing of when you bring an idea to a person is, is crucial too. And I, I don't have exact measurements, of course, on when. If you bring something that's just like, like lace, like the flimsiest gossamer idea, it can be blown away in a second. So it might be helpful to put a little meat on the bones of your idea to sit with it a little bit before you bring it out into the world. Unless, of course, you have somebody that's you totally, totally trust. Now, when you said you brought it to the 13th guy, you'd already been doing 12 of these interviews. You had already probably created a style. You, you had already learned from the first dozen of these things. When this guy heard it, Although you said you've done 500, I'm sure you learned so much more. But by the time you hit 13, you had already made something of substance and weight. And that was, you know, it was propitious timing because you couldn't have planned it. But that would have been the time to bring the idea out. It's got a little meat on the bones. Wow. Um. Well, I want to ask um, kind of, you know, what your sort of day-to-day -day habits and routines and rituals look like as a creative person. Like, you know, what does your average day look like? Well, again, you know, I can see you've been doing these 500 because they're great questions. And I'll generalize this by saying I know a lot of artists and musicians and a lot of people might think and poets and writers and, and 
some people generalize the quote creative type as being this sort of mercurial sort of sleep late into the day and, you know, get high and <laughs> ideas come to them. You know, I'm not going to name names, but nobody I know is an, an amazingly disciplined, hard worker. I mean, anybody that you admire, they are working this shit to the bone and they're learning and they're frustrated and they're going through some kind of process. So that's a general sense. So for me, I mean, I'll just give you a rundown and I don't suggest that anybody do anything like what I do, but it's very, very rigorous in terms of discipline in a certain way. So I happen to be what they call an observant Jew and I observe the Sabbath. So I don't work one day out of the week and I kind of completely exempt myself from any kind of technology. We could never do this podcast for me on a Saturday, not in 30 years, nor would I play a gig on between Friday night and Saturday night. That's a huge underpinning of a, of a structure for me. And it, you know, gets theological and I'm not going to get into that at this point, but I wake up very early in the morning because it's a great time for me to work, you know, sort of in the stillness of the day before phone calls start coming. Um, I'll wake up. I usually have a, you know, I have a prayer session that I do every day um, in the morning and a little bit in the afternoon and at night. And then I'll, I'll start maybe writing or answering some emails Something to do with writing or, or helping people. This goes on to about 10 o'clock and, and then I'll work out. I like to box, so I go three or four or five times a week. Um, something that gets my heart really pounding and sweating. For sure, physical resilience. And I, I, I want to just throw this in here because some people might not factor it in. Physical resilience is such a huge component and I know you surf and you look like you're in great shape, <laughs> you know, like, you know, unless you just chose those pictures that reflect the muscularity, but it's such a huge part of having the stamina to create, to mm -hmm. think, to be resistant to negativity, which is going to be there at every second. It's going to be the majority of time you're going to have. I don't know what these ratios are just coming out of the top of my head, but like you're going to have 95% drag and maybe if you're lucky, 5% flow mm -hmm. and, and having physical resilience that you feel healthy and that you can breathe and you can walk and that being a big part of your process is a huge component. And I know it doesn't somehow correlate for some people. One is physical and one is so mental. Yeah. We are, and this is a, you know, I say this carefully because some people don't know this at this point because they're always on the computer, always staring at a digital screen. We are not brains in saline solution. We're actually physical beings that walk in space. You know, we're visceral beings. And, and that physicality is such a huge part of what we put out into the world, you know, so at some point they're going to find there's got to be a better way than clicking away on a computer screen to do all this. It's yeah. too sedentary. It's, yeah. it's not the right way. 
Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the my writing journey and my surfing journey uh, started very much at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. I, had, I never really thought about it that much. And as a kid, I wasn't like very athletic. It just somehow wasn't my thing. I've gotten so much more into it now. When I see how the one really reflects the other, this idea of moving through space. My wife is a dancer. She's always talking to me about it. She says, by the way, you are the worst dancer in the world. <laughs> like embarrassing, like at a bar mitzvah. Or at, you know, I don't think we ever go to a club and dance or a wedding. But she said it's weird. When you're on stage, you move with your guitar entirely differently. There's this, I don't know, this just sort of physicality that doesn't exist in your real life that exists on stage where you're exuding a certain kind of energy. And I happen to think maybe because on stage I'm not thinking about moving and I'm not filled with this fearful voice that I'm the shittiest dancer that there ever was. You know, that's kind of not happening. But it is to this idea of the physical and the emotional, the mental, all kind of being apart. I got a stand-up desk, which I'm not using at the moment. I should have been. Um, it's kind of a cool thing. I don't know. Do you ever use that? I, I know of them. I don't use one, but I know of them. It kind of is good. Sometimes you're just too tired, but it you write differently and you think differently when you're standing up. I can't quantify how it's different, but it, it is. Wow. Well, um, this has been really cool. It's been different, and uh, I, I really kind of appreciate the take that you've given us uh, on creativity and the creative process. Uh, so I'm going to finish with uh, my final question, which is how we finish all our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I had a chance to think about that a little bit. If I may, some of the things that I really love, and I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to use music as a reference point, are things that I start out hating at first. It's like if I hear a song and it kind of makes sense and I get it, like, yeah, that's a really professional song. I get it. It's well-produced. But somehow I'm not touched by it. It just goes into some file, like, yeah, whatever file. But then I'll hear something. Well, actually, when I was a kid, I heard this one guy he was on his first tour and I was, I must've had my license cause I could drive to a radio station where he was on tour and he was doing this live thing. And the guy was like weird looking. He didn't look like the bands that were playing in the, you know, mid seventies. Didn't look like any hard rock guy. Didn't look like fog hat. He just looked like a bum and he was drunk. Too. He seemed pretty drunk and he was playing the piano. He was playing kind of advanced harmonies, sort of big chords, but he was playing them pretty. It was rough shod. It was rough hewing the way he was playing. Like, I don't quite get this guy. And his voice was really ragged. And the stories he was telling were weird and drunk and he smoked and he told stories and he was kind of funny, but. Well, the guy was Tom Waits, and what was unmistakable about him was that 
his rough edges, his mistakes, his awfulness was combined with his technique and his beauty. There was something about him that was arresting in his rawness. And I think even people that are great, that are polished, like Prince, had a certain degree of that rawness to that immediacy that sounded, how dare you do that? that? That's not possible to write a song called Soft and Wet. Who would, who would dare? So to me, being unmistakable is putting all aspects of your humanity out there, your 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 pretty side, your beautiful combed over side, and also your raw, undiscovered side. Mm. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and insights with the listeners. Uh, this has just been really cool. Well, I have to say back to you, I will forever think of you as a teacher in some ways and a mentor. And also the small things that you hear on a podcast or from somebody on a phone call, you never know who you're talking to, how those words are going to affect somebody. They can be so much more deep and so much more profound than you ever imagined. And, and you did that for me, and I'll always be grateful to you for that. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. I spent about uh, 17 years being a professional dominatrix, a very successful one, uh-huh. in New York and other places in the world. And um, for the first years, the only reason I was doing that was because I knew how to make really good money. Mm-hmm. And I was pursuing a path uh, as a Taoist. So my dream was to be a Taoist nun. Uh, I got as close as four days away from ordination, but um, fate had other plans for me. What I noticed over the years was that what I was learning about um, Taoist martial arts, Taoist healing, energetic practices, how to read a body, um, how to see when somebody is uh, collapsing in on themselves or ready to attack or um, energetically, behaviorally doing something that reflects uh, what they're at and, and how, and how uh, the human body communicates with other human bodies in that sphere. And as I was studying, I started realizing that in the dungeon where I'm paid to have power over a man, um, a lot of those same ways of being would show up. A lot of the same patterns that men have that women have would show up. Kasha Urbinak joins us to talk about Foundations of Unshakable Power. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.